words of the psalmist, be still my soul. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of 2 Corinthians. In the New Testament, we taught last Wednesday evening from 2 Corinthians. We're going to be there again in chapter 7. Apart from Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is, without a doubt, one of the primary figures of the New Testament, both in his life and also his writings. And the mark that he has had on the world is unparalleled through his preaching the gospel, writing these letters to these churches. And we read about his adventures and church planning in the book of Acts, and it really is incredible. And also um, here in the letters to the Corinthians especially, and all that he went through. And it's, it's easy for us, when we, when we read what he's done, to look at him as some sort of superhuman um, and we look at all the physical challenges that he faced, and we, we, we think, at least I can be guilty of this, of seeing all that he went through and think, well, he is Paul, and so he went through all that unscathed. It was, I'm sure, getting beaten and left for dead and, and stoned, and all of these things were difficult, obviously, physically, but he's the Apostle Paul, and so it, it didn't really have maybe that great effect on him emotionally and spiritually, and yet that's just not the case. And he carried with him not only those challenges, but also the burden of all the churches that he, that he started, that he planted, all the people that he shepherded over, and he would frequently write back to them, Paul, after, after leaving a church, he would, he would plant a church and then travel on to another place and preach the gospel and plant a church there, and, and then travel to another place and preach the gospel and plant a church, but he wouldn't just forget about all the people that were left behind, he would often write back to them and encourage them, he would be concerned about them, um, and, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about all the things that he's gone through, he says, and on top of that, the care of all the churches. So he's carrying this weight, this burden of all of these people from all of these churches with him everywhere he goes. And he dealt with some very trying times, challenging times. And in the passage of scripture that we're going to read this morning, he's coming out of one of those. He's, he's now very joyful and experiencing great joy, but he's, he tells that he was going through great difficulties. And we're going to find out exactly what brought him that joy, what brought him the anxiety before that. Um, he would write these letters to churches, and often, often they would be letters of commendation. We, we thank God for you. We thank God for all that God's doing. We're hearing reports of you and your great faith and your great love and your great charity and all the hope and, and, and that the gospel is being um, um, spread from you far and wide. He would commend them. But often his letters were letters of rebuke, strong letters about their sin and how they've strayed away from God. And in those days, the way the mail would operate, he wouldn't know for quite some time how those letters were received. He would send a letter, and it wasn't like on your cell phone where you send somebody a text and you're just waiting for them. You're waiting to, it to be acknowledged that they read it, and then you're wondering maybe for a few moments, sometimes for a couple of days, I wonder how that was affected them. For, for Paul, sending letters across the ocean sometimes to different continents sometimes would take weeks or even months. He would, he would, he would write these sometimes very harsh letters, and then he, he didn't know how they would be received by these Christians that he loved so dearly. And it had a great weight on him. And such is the case with, with what we're going to read today. We're going to begin in chapter 7 and verse number 4. And I'm going to ask you to stand just one more time for the reading of God's word as is our practice 
here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 4. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Paul is writing a letter to this church in Corinth. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that, we might, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all these things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You can be seated. Paul had gone through a discouraging time, a depressed time, but he wasn't anymore. In verse 4, we read that he's now filled with joy and he's filled with comfort. Where did that come from? We're going to look at that today. And I want to give you just three simple points this morning. And I pray they'll be a, a, a help to you from God's word from this text. The first is this. Everyone is a potential victim of discouragement. Everyone is a potential victim of discouragement. If you look to the person to your left or to the right, they may be smiling all the time, but they are a potential victim of discouragement. They will, they have, and they will go through times of discouragement. None of us are exempt. I'm not, you're not. The Apostle Paul was not. Look in verse 5 and we see some of the reason for it. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Some very descriptive language. Our flesh had no rest. We all value our sleep. And when circumstances begin affecting our sleep, they get serious. We take notice. When you can't sleep at night because of all of the, the things that are racing in your mind, and, and you can't, when you wake up anxious in the morning because of things in your life that are beyond your control, it's very serious. This is where Paul was. Our flesh had no rest. As much as we tried, we simply could not sleep. He was troubled. Which teaches us that even if you're doing the right things, living the right way, Paul was a missionary, a church planter, following the Lord, left everything, left everything to go to regions beyond where he'd ever been to experience great persecution. He preached the gospel. He loved people who did not love him in return. He was living, I think we would all agree that he was living in the will of God, and yet he even experienced discouragement. Just because you live 
the way God would have you to live does not exempt you from discouragement. Never assume that you're alone in your feelings of discouragement. You face it. Your friends face it. Your family faces it. Your children face it. Your parents face it. Your coworker faces it. Your boss faces it. Your pastor faces it. Everyone that you know faces discouragement from time to time. None of us are exempt from it. Sometimes we may think that someone like Paul wouldn't possibly face discouragement, not Paul. You might think that about other preachers. You might think of that about your own pastor. There's no way he could possibly face discouragement like I do. They don't face depression like I do, but we understand from Paul that everybody faces it. In fact, I, I want to just do a real quick skim through the book of 2 Corinthians, just a few verses, beginning back in ch chapter 1, and let you see what Paul has to say just in, in a few verses about his own troubles. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, if I said first, I apologize. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll just move quickly through some verses here. Verse 4, who comforted us, comforteth us in all our tribulation. Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. Verse 6, whether we be afflicted. Verse 8, for we would not, brethren, have you to be ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. Now it's trouble. We were pressed out of measure, above strength. Listen to this. Even so much that we despaired even of life. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 4. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Verse 13. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. Chapter 3, verse 8. That's not the verse that I was looking for, I don't believe. I'll read the verse that I was looking for you. I have it written down. This is what Paul said. We're troubled in every side, yet not distressed. Troubled in every side. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed this phrase always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus look at chapter 11 there are more we could we could look at chapter 11 one of the most detailed records of Paul's sufferings beginning in verse 24 of the Jews five times received I 40 stripes save one thrice was I beaten with rods once was I stoned thrice I suffered shipwreck a night and a day have I been in the deep in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Everywhere I go, there's perils, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? Paul was persecuted, we know that, but these persecutions had an effect on him. More than just a physical effect. They infected, or they affected his, externally of course, but inside he was affected. Emotionally he was affected. Spiritually he was affected. Back to chapter 7 where we begin. In verse number 5. When we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. 
Let's not overlook those words. There was nowhere to go. Paul felt like there was no direction that he could go to get away from the troubles that he was facing. We were troubled on every side. On the outside, he said there were fightings. We know what those outside things were. We just read about them. Stoned often, left for dead, beaten, stripes. But there was something going on on the inside as well. Internal struggles, doubt, doubt with himself, perhaps doubting God, certainly doubting the people that he ministered to, doubt, discouragement, depression, maybe contemplating giving up and going home. We don't know everything that was going on within the Apostle Paul, but we do know that his external circumstances created some internal conflict. Everyone is a potential victim of discouragement. Don't think you are alone because you're not. Secondly, it is God who comforts. Comfort would, would come to the apostle, and it didn't come from taking a vacation or buying a new car or binge-watching his favorite TV show while eating a tub of ice cream. It didn't come from any of those things that we sometimes self-medicate with. Those things do feel better, but they don't last very long, unfortunately. So how did Paul find comfort? Very simply, in verse 6, those first two words, nevertheless, God. Those are very powerful words, aren't they? Paul said we couldn't sleep, we were troubled on every side, nowhere to run, fightings without, fightings within, nevertheless, God. Never forget that no matter how hopeless your situation may be, those two words can overturn everything. They can change everything. Nevertheless, God. That comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us. God is the source of lasting comfort. God is the source of true comfort. We can self-medicate with all these other things that make us feel better momentarily or temporarily, but God is the only one who can bring lasting comfort. Because he's the only one that can know the depth of the despair that's in your heart. And therefore, he's the only one who is capable of knowing the solution, God. Nevertheless, God. Now, the way he brings us comfort may vary. Here, there are two things that Paul mentions. First, through the, through, through the, the visit of his friend and ministry partner, Titus. Verse 6, nevertheless, God, that comforted those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You might remember when we were kind of quickly reading through 2 Corinthians earlier that Paul said that he was, he was cast down. He had no rest in his spirit because he couldn't find Titus. He, didn't, he, was, he wanted Titus, but Titus wasn't there. But now Titus has returned, and his friend, meeting with him, brought him great comfort. And friends often bring us comfort, don't they? They should. We should, be comf we should have people that we can find comfort in. We ought to be comforters for those that are cast down. That's what Titus was for Paul. I hope that could be said of us, that when somebody is discouraged, when they see us, there is a, a joy about them. But it wasn't just the visit from Titus, because had Titus come along and said, Paul, I have bad news. Our friends back in Corinth, they got your letter, and they're, they're, they're not doing well at all. They're not happy. They're angry with you. They don't want to have anything to do with you. They can't believe you would write them such a scathing letter. And, and they, want nothing. They, don't, they said they don't ever want you to write them again. He could have said that, and that would have not have been encouragement to Paul. But the message that Titus brought 
was of great comfort to Paul. Verse 7, not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. Titus' return, along with the excitement that he had over what God was doing in the church in Corinth, brought, brought, brought Paul great joy and comfort. So it wasn't just Titus putting on his therapist cap saying, come on, you're okay, God loves you, and you're a preacher, so keep your chin up. But rather, it was the message that he brought that the people that you love in the church where you spent so many months that strayed into sin, but now you've written them this letter to confront their sin, to rebuke them from their sin. I want you to know that, that they're doing well and they're longing to see you. They love you. Three things he mentions. First, your earnest desire in verse 7. They wanted to see Paul. They didn't want to shun Paul for what he had said, for speaking the truth to them. Instead, they had an earnest desire for him. They didn't turn their backs on him. Secondly, your mourning. They had great sorrow over their sin, over what, how they had sinned against the Lord, how they had sinned against all that they had been taught, how they had betrayed Paul. Great mourning. And three, your fervent mind toward me. Their great loyalty that they had. This is a cause for joy for the people. Loyalty. They had a fervent mind toward you. Their minds are set towards you, Paul. You might have thought, you might have thought by the letter that you wrote that they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you, but they are still strong and staying loyal to you, Paul. There's nothing that can comfort someone's heart when they're discouraged than to know that they have loyal friends, people that are there for them. This is the case for all of us. It's the case for everyone. I think it's the case with pastors, perhaps, maybe even more, because they do experience people leaving them more than most of us would. This is Pastor Appreciation Month, October. I don't know if you knew that. But nothing shows honor and appreciation for a pastor more than loyalty. Just saying, I'm here for you. I got you back. Now, there are pastors who do not deserve honor. We understand that. But when we have a pastor who deserves honor, I think we ought to respect and be loyal. And that's what Paul was comforted by. This is a very personal thing here. Your earnest desire, your mourning, and your fervent mind toward me. Nothing comforts hearts more than people who are loyal and people who are following the Lord. So everybody is subject to seasons of discouragement. No one is exempt. Number two, it's God who comforts. I said all that as, as really as context, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in the third point, which is, is the real focus today. And that is this. Godly sorrow is for our benefit. Godly sorrow is for our benefit. It's good for us. Look in verse 8. For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Now there are a lot of sorries and sorrows 
in these two verses. But essentially what Paul is saying was when I wrote the letter and, and, and knew that it would be harmful, it would hurt you, I regretted it for a while. I was sorry that I did. But now I'm not sorry because he realized or he recognized, I should say, that his words that made them sorry, that hurt them, that were hurtful for a season, now have helped them. The, the, the word repent and repentance is used also throughout these two verses, and it's actually two different words that are translated repent and repentance. And the first one in verse number eight has to do with regret. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. He said, I wrote you that letter confronting your sin, but I want you to know that I'm not sorry that I did. I don't regret sending it, even though when I first did send it, I had some initial regrets about sending it. Have you ever said something, had a conversation with somebody, maybe you were confronting something that you knew was not helpful for them, maybe it was a child, and, and, and you saw something in your life that you know was not good for them, maybe it was a friend, and you confronted this issue, and then, and then after having the, this strong conversation, you had thoughts in your mind like, maybe I was a little harsh, maybe I shouldn't have said it quite like that, maybe I shouldn't have said it at all, maybe it wasn't my place, maybe I should have just stayed out of it. That's where Paul was. He, he wrote a letter, and he, he had, he had a, a time of regret. I'm not sorry, but I was sorry. I do not repent, but I did repent. I don't regret it now, but I did regret it at the time. Sometimes things that hurt us for a time will actually help us for eternity. Sometimes things are harmful for us. that are Not harmful, but they're hurtful for us. But they have long-term benefits. Such was the case with this. When he wrote this letter, it hurt them. Because he was using strong language. And yet he recognized, even though it hurt them, it was good for them. And it's going to have eternal benefits for them. The word repentance in verse number 9 is a word that we commonly think of when we hear about repentance or we read about repentance. That means a, a change. A change of mind that leads to a change in our behavior. That leads to a change in our life. It's a reformation. It's something that... I was going this direction, but I'm repenting, and now I'm going that direction. And so Paul says to them, I was grieved, but now I rejoice. Because the sorrow that you were experiencing because of the letter that I wrote to you actually is bringing about change that you needed to make anyway. Repentance. True change. And he mentions their sorrow any, 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 any contrast here, Paul does, and this is such an important distinction, he contrasts two different types of sorrow in, in these verses. The first is what he calls godly sorrow. The other is worldly sorrow. Two sorrows, but from a different, they have a different source. Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, not to be regretted. So there's this godly sorrow, which doesn't lead to regrets. Godly sorrow originates with the truth. It originates with God's truth from God's word. That's what, when Paul wrote to them, he wasn't just giving them his own opinions. He was giving them the word, the word of God. He was writing to them saying, the way that you're living is against God's law. It's against God. He was giving them truth. And how do we know if our sorrow that we're experiencing is, is godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow leads to repentance. In fact, look in verse 11, we see some specific results from this godly sorrow. Behold the self-same thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort. 
What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. And all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There was sin in this church in Corinth. Great sin. Wicked things going on that... They're just evil for Christians, things that Christians should not be doing. And Paul wrote a letter to them to help them to see their error of their ways. And after reading the letter from Paul, they recognized the error of their ways and they repented of their sin. The word carefulness that we see at the beginning of verse 11 has to do with haste. That's what we see, what, what indignation, what, what zeal. They, they were quick to re- restore their reputation. They were quick to change. They had a energy and a diligence about stopping the things that they were doing and, and, and repenting and turning to the right way. That's what godly sorrow leads to, repentance, that ultimately leads to salvation. Not just being sorry that you're caught, but being diligent to correct your error, to stop doing the things that you were doing that were against God and to begin following after him. I want to point out another characteristic of godly sorrow, and that is in verse number 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were for a season. Godly sorrow isn't permanent. If If you're continuing to experience sorrow over sin that God has forgiven, that you've repented of... You've changed your way, and you're, you're, you're still experiencing great sorrow over past sins that God has cleansed, and you've repented of, then that, sin, that's, that sorrow is not godly sorrow. God is not sending you that sorrow. God will not have us permanently to live in bondage over past sins that he's forgiven and that, and that we've repented of. So if you're experiencing that kind of sorrow, just know that it's not from God. It's not from God. That's godly sorrow. And then there's another type of sorrow that's He calls worldly sorrow, verse 10 again. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Worldly sorrow may be the result of being caught for doing something we shouldn't have been doing. It may be the result of having a reputation tarnished and it saddens us, it sorrows us. But it's very different from sorrow that's brought about by God and by God's word. Worldly sorrow is, leads to shame and to, and to guilt and to hopelessness. And ultimately leads to bitterness and depression, suicide. We have an example of worldly sorrow in Matthew 27. I don't want to have you turn there. But in Matthew 27, Judas Iscariot had just betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He, you probably are familiar with it, he made an agreement with the enemies of Christ, and he said, I'm, I'm going to take you to him, and I'm going I'm 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 to kiss him, and by that you'll know that he is the one that you're after. And so he goes in, and he meets Jesus in the garden, and he kisses him, and, they, and the soldiers take him away. And then Judas Iscariot began to have feelings of remorse over what he had done, realizing that what he had done was wrong. And he, and he went back trying to get his money back and saying, or give the money back and say, never mind. Matthew 27, 3, then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. He tried to take it back. He tried to say, I, I messed up. Here's the money. Forget all this happened. 
But we know that this was not a godly sorrow because what happened after that when they refused was he went out and he hung himself. This is Peter's graphic retelling of the event. Now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. This is the result of worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to life, leads to repentance, leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow leads to death. One is the result of truth and the other is the result of lies from the devil. One brings salvation and one leads to death. I want to conclude this morning just by asking two questions. Two very important questions. The the first is this. Who needs to repent? If if godly sorrow leads to repentance, who is it that needs to repent? if, If repentance is a change in our mind that causes us to change the direction of our life, then who actually needs to repent? Certainly those who are without Christ need to repent. Those who don't know him. Those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are the enemies of of God. Jesus said when he was on the earth, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was the path of Christ. John 15, 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. It was the message of the apostles in the book of Acts. They preached Christ and him crucified. They preached repentance of sin. Repentance is needed and necessary for salvation. A sinner cannot live like he's always lived and refuse to change and be saved. It's impossible. It goes against everything that we know to be true. There's no salvation apart from repentance. There's no repentance apart from sorrow. Sorrow over our sin. Sorrow over offending a holy God. Sorrow over falling short. Sorrow over facing the wrath of God. All of these things, sorrow, godly sorrow, precedes repentance, which precedes salvation. And if you've never faced that sorrow that accompanies the fact that you've sinned against a righteous God, and that you are destined to face the wrath of a holy God, that the penalty that's against you is more than you can ever pay on your own. If you've never been confronted with that sorrow over your own sin, then you are not saved. Sorrow, godly sorrow, and repentance are a requirement for salvation. But it's not just those that are lost that need repentance. Repentance is for believers as well. In fact, repentance is a trait. It's an evidence of salvation. We ought to be repenting. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, is not writing to a a bunch of pagan people. He's writing to churches. This letter is to churches, to a church, to people just like you and me. And he's telling them that the godly sorrow that they experienced was good for them because it drove them to repent to God. The lost need to repent, but repentance should be characteristic of every child of God. Which leads to the second question that I want to ask. If repentance is for everyone, then why is there so little godly sorrow and repentance that takes place in the lives of Christians? And you and I, why is there not more godly sorrow? Why is there not more repentance? 
especially those of us that are consistently in the word of God and we're taking in the truth, especially for those of us that are consistently coming to church and being fed by the word of God and being surrounded by other believers? Why is there not more godly sorrow? Why is there not more repentance? We can understand it for a Christian who perhaps has strayed away and, 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 and they're not exposed to the truth of God's word regularly. Perhaps I can understand why they would not be drawn to repentance. But for those of us that are consistently, regularly putting ourselves under the preaching of God's word and we're reading and praying, why is there not more godly sorrow over our own sin and repentance taking place? What's the problem? If the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, why is it not doing a work in us? Has it become dull? Have we reached a, a, a point of perfection as Christians that we no longer need to repent? We've got it all figured out. We finally got, we finally got all of God's law under control and we just don't ever have a need to repent because we get it right all the time. Of course, that's not the truth. The other option, I think, is that our hearts often become hardened. We become dull of hearing. So that even though God's word is still quick and powerful, it's not affecting us anymore. We're dull of hearing. Our hearts have become so hardened that we can hear it, and it never penetrates the heart. It's a very dangerous place to be. So what should we do? We should embrace and even long for godly sorrow in our lives. Beg God to bring you to a place of repentance regularly. Allow him through the truth of his word to expose the, our sin in our lives and to break us. Ask God, like David did, to search me, O God, and know my heart and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting Allow him to break us down, to soften our hearts, to cut out all that is unholy that's keeping us from having fellowship with him. God uses broken people. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. No one who ever truly repents will regret it. That's what Paul said back in verse 10. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. This repentance doesn't lead to any regrets at all. Our sin ought to have an effect on us. How can we, who have experienced the amazing grace of God, sin against him and be unaffected? How does it not bring us to sorrow when we dishonor the one who sent his only begotten son to hang on a cross and be beaten and to bear our own individual sins on his body on the cross? How can we then sin against him and it not affect us and it not lead us to godly sorrow and, and true repentance? Let's be like the prodigal who said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight I am no more worthy to be called thy son. That's what repentance looks like. David in chapter 51 of Psalms when he said, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Or like the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter who said, O wretched man that I am, 
Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Christians, we need sorrow, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Spurgeon called it sweet sorrow. And if you've experienced it, you know that it is sweet sorrow. When God, when, when, when God through the sword of the Spirit, convicts you of your sin and you recognize that you, have, that you have broken God's law, that you have offended God, and you're brought to a place of repentance before him, and that fellowship is restored, it's a sweet place to be. It really is sweet sorrow. There's nothing like it. Back into fellowship when we've ventured off. We ought to make every effort to expose ourselves to God's word often. Through prayer and, and private meditation on his word. Through public worship and Bible study as we're doing here today. And, and, and note that ultimately, in this case, it was God who brought the comfort and the sorrow. But he, he, he delivered that sorrow through a letter of Paul, through somebody else. And so sometimes when we ask God to show us our sin, it may come through our Bible reading. And we, we read it and we study and we say, I've sinned against God. It may come as we're sitting and, and, and listening as God's word is being preached and the Holy Spirit does a convicting work and, and shows us our sin and we have the option, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to repent or am I going to cling and harden my heart? It could come from a friend, a brother and sister in Christ who recognizes something in our life as Paul did and, 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 and he says, the way that you're going is not good. And what are we going to do with it? Are we going to humble ourselves before God? Are we going to humble ourselves and say as they did, and say, this has made me sorry, but I don't regret it because it's led me to repentance. Paul knew that there could have been an adverse effect to his words. He knew that the people may not have accepted it. He knew that it may have hardened them, and it, it may have even pushed them away, and it, and it concerned him. But he was brought great comfort when he, when, he, when he found out from his brother Titus that the word, the letter that you wrote was accepted and not just accepted, but they're longing to see you and they've sorrowed and they've repented. It brought great joy to the apostle. It was good for him. It was good for the people of Corinth to repent. I pray that tonight we would be willing to hear from God. We would not just be willing to hear the truth, but we would long for it. We would beg God for it. We would plead to him, please, Lord, show me, search me, try me. And then when he does, grieve over our own sin. Grieve over our own sin. And then repent of our own sin. That is good sorrow. That's godly sorrow. Let's pray. In a moment, piano is going to play, and as we always do, we're going to invite you to seek the Lord. Come forward if you'd like and pray at the altar. Pray at your seat. Reach out to the Lord and ask him. Ask God, God, would you try me? Search my heart. May we all be willing to repent where we failed him. God, we're so grateful for your great mercy. And how time and time again you show your love to us. And we could look at the despicable sins of these, this church in Corinth. And if some of the things that they were committing were happening today, we might be tempted to, to shun them and to cut them off, Lord. But you were merciful. And I thank you that you used the Apostle Paul to send this letter that may have hurt them. It did hurt them. 
for a while, Lord, but in the end, they turned to you. They were restored to you. God, I pray that you would do a, a work in our hearts. Each person that's listening to my words now, Lord, I pray that we would all reach out to you. Lord, we would, we would, we would use this time wisely to pray, to ask you to search our hearts, Lord. We would be here and ready to repent. As the piano plays, if you would.